Good morning. Today's reading will be from Psalm 85, verses 1 through 13. It reads, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned your anger um, from them. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, in case that you didn't hear Alan, he did a phenomenal job with Psalm 85. That's where we're headed this morning. It's in the Old Testament. We're looking at the entire Psalm uh, 85, verses 1 through 13. And so while you open or load your Bible, I just want to give you a quick uh, updates on a few things. Uh, the first one uh, is that today is just going to be a standalone. I don't want to say just as if it's not important, right? Today is a standalone. Next week, we're going to start a series on stewardship. Uh, and in a nutshell, what we're looking at is what does it look like to cultivate wisdom so that we would be the stewards God has called us to in our everyday lives. Uh, and so that's something that we're going to start on next week. In addition to that, there are these Connect cards that are on the chairs and on the Connect desk in the back. Uh, if you're new, we would love to do two things. One, we'd love to pray for you. And so if you would allow us that opportunity, fill one out, drop it in the back, uh, and we'd love to have the opportunity to, to pray for you. In addition to that, uh, if we can take you out to lunch or dinner, we want that opportunity as well. It's on us. Don't sweat it. Just let us know what works best for you. Finally, there are Bibles on the chairs. Those Bibles are our gift to you. We love to read God's Word, preach from God's Word, and therefore we want to have uh, God's Word in our hands. And so if you don't have a Bible, take one with you. If you know someone that would benefit from having God's Word in their hands, then definitely hook them up. Those are the only things I have for you this morning. Uh, as we start Psalm 85, I, I just want to be honest. I'm not very good at the celebration of uh, the new year, uh, and it's not because 2020 and 2021 left a sour taste in my mouth for bringing in a new year. I'm just not the best at celebrating it, uh, and my family can attest to this. All right. Uh, I find myself overthinking the new year on several occasions. Like sometimes I think, well, if I say happy new year, but you had an evening that was filled with like conflict and devastation, then I feel stupid, right? This is me. This is me talking to me, not me talking to you, 
right? Uh, or if I wish you a happy new year, uh, I feel like it's disingenuous, like kind of like when you ask someone, how are you doing? And they say, fine. And then you kind of awkwardly go on about your day, or it becomes even more awkward when they begin telling you all the stuff that's really going on. And though that's something you want, you weren't expecting it. See what I mean? Overthinking it. I overthink uh, the whole happy new year thing. And then what doesn't help what doesn't help, and this is just me being pessimistic, what doesn't help is that statistically, I have read that up to 80% of people who make New Year resolutions will have failed to keep them by the second week of February. Okay, and so uh, I certainly don't mean to burst your bubble. Uh, perhaps you're gonna be part of the 20% who will see the fruition of your resolution this year. So, hey man, get after it, right? Uh, so, overthinking, I've made it awkward, I'm sorry. But nevertheless, it's interesting though, isn't it? That when you consider the new year and the refreshment that it feels that it brings, it gives many people hope. Whether it's in the context of making changes in their lives or in setting goals for the rest of the year or even wanting a different perspective on things, it, it brings many people hope, especially after you consider the last two years. And if you're in the boat of making goals, then, then hear me say, make it happen. Set those goals and get after it. But might I also suggest that more than the hopeful resolution of a new year, can we as a church consider revival? More than resolution, could we consider revival? You see, over the last two years, of which I won't recount, we have seen the American church have our idols exposed. And we're not immune to that in McAllen. We've seen the American church have our idols exposed while simultaneously seeing the saints like you grow weary and tired. And as the last two years have challenged us in numerous ways, did you ever feel like you found yourself back in a spot that you told yourself you would never revisit again? Did you ever feel like in that spot, you just thought, this is seriously the last time uh, that I want to be in here, or worse, I think God is going to bounce now. I've jacked it up way too many times. God is going to bounce. Or if you find yourself here and you're curious about who God is, and you've been wrestling with the thoughts of God, have you ever wondered why would he even care about someone like yourself? Today, I want us to consider revival. And before we dig into our text, I think it's fair to provide a little bit of context as to what revival is, especially when it comes to valley culture. See, when some of you hear the word revival, you may think about a huge tent on the edges of cities like Alton or Donna or Elsa. Maybe you've even seen it off of the freeway in McAllen or in some of these larger churches. And it says something like this, revival, Monday through Friday. Here's the thing about revival. And if that's your idea, I'm gonna burst your bubble gladly, right? Like, here's the thing about revival. Revival is not something that can be mechanically programmed. It is not something that can be mechanically programmed ever. When we see what the Bible says about revival, and when we consider what we think revival is based on our experiences, we're going to notice that they are two completely different things. 
Revival in the Bible is God's grace. Listen to me on this, because this is part of your main idea. This is God's grace radically refreshing, tired, and weary saints again and again and again and again. Revival is an act of the Spirit of God powerfully poured out onto the people of God primarily through the preaching of God's Word. Revival is never mechanically programmed because you cannot program the Holy Spirit. That's not how revival works. That's not what revival is. Psalm 85 is a community prayer of revival from and for tired and weary saints. And as eager as we may be for the start of the year, can we as a church, that's right, people are going to come in through that door. It's unlocked. Don't worry about them. Can we, as, and this one too, they're both unlocked. Can we consider revival? Can we consider revival? So let me pray, and then we'll unpack Psalm 85. <clears throat> Lord, as we come before you at the start of this year, uh, as we come before you this morning, we begin by thanking you for giving us, allowing us the opportunity to worship you in song and prayer and now through the preached word. God, our prayer is that we would delight in your word this morning. Our prayer is that uh, your word would be sweeter to us than honey. Our prayer is that as we delight in your word, we would uh, ultimately delight in Jesus. And so as we consider Psalm 85, uh, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in and through us this morning? Would you point us to Jesus? Would you expose and discern the intentions of our heart? And may we worship you with gladness and fullness in our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break down Psalm 85 into four parts. I'll go through them as we get to them. Uh, when it comes to Psalm 85, we actually don't have a lot of context surrounding Psalm 85. But the cry or the desire for revival from the people of God is not unique to Psalm 85. And so when you consider the Old Testament, revival has often come about as the people of God have reflected and recognized that they have once again turned away from the Lord and turned toward their sin. And oftentimes when they get to this place of realization, they realize that it was something that was just a degree different in their walk that they were just off at one point, and then that one thing turned into another thing, that another thing turned into something else, and it went from being a mistake to a practice to habitually living in sin. And so when we consider Psalm 85 and when we consider the people reflecting on their sin or reflecting on the condition of their heart, it is not unique to this psalm. But in addition to that, the comfort of Psalm 85 is that the people in this psalm are just like you and me. People who are in that same spot again. People who are tired and weary, disheartened and discouraged. That's why taking a day to reflect 
and consider this psalm is a good thing. It's an encouraging thing. So how do we begin to consider revival? How do we consider revival? Well, as I mentioned, we're going to break down Psalm 85 into four parts. And the first one is remembering mercy. This is verses one through three. Remembering mercy. As we begin to reflect on the conditions of our heart, it could be kind of discouraging to do so. It could be discouraging because you're thinking, this is exactly why I feel dry, distant, and discouraged. Why would I want to reflect on what got me here? But when you consider the opening verses of this psalm, you're going to notice that the people aren't praying to be immediately restored. The opening of their prayer is them remembering God's mercy. So let's look at verses one through three. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. That's really fascinating. As opposed to immediately praying, I want to be restored, I want to be restored, the first thing that we see the people of God do is remember God's mercy in the forgiveness of their sins and in the removal of his wrath toward them. And you see this little word there, Selah. Selah is an invitation to sit and reflect in the truth of God's work for you. So let's practice. Once more, verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. If revival begins with remembering God's mercy, then let us turn our hearts to remember God's mercy for us. In addition to that, we see that God's anger was removed from the people. That is, on the cross, as we look and reflect on Jesus, on the cross, not only was your sin forgiven, but the wrath of God that was over you was poured out on Jesus in your behalf so that you would be forgiven and counted as righteous. So sit in that for just a second. Let's go, Mr. Rogers. Ten seconds. Sit in it. God's mercy for you. Because of Jesus, all of your sin, past, present, future, has been covered. That because of Jesus, the wrath of God that was over you has been met and quenched by the grace of God in your behalf. The Apostle John says it this way, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some of you have heard that word propitiation. Some of you have not heard that word propitiation. It's a fancy word. It's a five dollar word. And basically what that word means is that on the cross, Jesus not only bore our sin and bore God's wrath, as a result, everything that was intended for us 
was placed upon Jesus. The death that we deserved was taken on by Jesus. The wrath that we deserve was taken on by Jesus. And so anytime you read through the Psalms and you come across this word, Selah, it's an invitation to sit and reflect on God's truth for you. See, resolutions are good not only because we want to be different or we want to do different things, right? There's a bunch of different reasons as to why you might be down with resolutions. But if we're honest, most of the time, the reason we want resolutions is because they get us uh, running as far and as fast away from where we were. Therefore, more than resolution, let us consider revival. God's grace to refresh tired and weary saints. When you remember God's mercy for you, you remember the outpouring of his grace to you. One pastor said it this way, for every again of our sin, there is an even greater again for God's grace. Revival begins with God's past mercies. It begins with remembering God's mercy for you. The second portion of this prayer consists of a few things. It consists of two petitions, an argument, and a result. And we're going to walk through each one in just a moment. This is verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 7, I'd actually like to read it because you can get a sense of their heart here. Here we go. Verse 4, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. In these three verses, you get a sense of their heart. In other words, they are aware of the discipline of God and their distance from God. And so let's consider their two petitions. The first is right in the opening of verse four, restore us again. A petition is a request. So the the writer who is speaking on behalf of the people begins by remembering God's mercy, and now he transitions to their petition, their request. And the first one is restore us again. The root meaning of the word restore here is to turn. And it could be that the writer is asking God to turn back towards his people as they are turning toward him so that he would end his discipline toward them as a result of their rebellion. In other words, what they are doing in petitioning or requesting restores again. They are aware of their sin. They are aware of where they are. They are aware of the condition of their hearts. They have finally realized that they have become okay with complacency. They have realized that they've been in rebellion with God. And the thing that they're asking him to do is a thing that only God can do. And so when it's them considering restoration, they're aware of their sin. They're aware of the condition of their heart. They are aware of how they ended up where they are. Their repentance, their repentance is is genuine. It's not mechanical. You know what mechanical repentance is? You realize maybe you've made a mistake, you've jacked it up a certain way, you're like, man, I'm going to go to God and he's going to forgive me and it'll be cool and I'm good. But really, there is no heart change. 
There is no transformation as a result of that repentance. There isn't grief that accompanies that repentance. It's not motivated by grace. That's mechanical repentance. And the people of God were famous for doing this kind of thing. You should check out Hosea 6. The opening of Hosea 6 is the people of God crying out to God, ultimately them realizing their sin once again, and they go on to say, if we go to him, he's going to restore us, he's going to bind up our wounds, and on the third day we'll be good to go. And the prayer is actually very good, right? It's full of theological truths, really good Christianese, like some of you like chatting it up, right? Like really good Christian church culture. And then God responds to them. And he says, your repentance, you know, you turning away from your sin and wanting to turn toward me, it's not genuine. Your repentance is like the morning dew that we find on the grass. By the time the afternoon comes, it's faded. It was never actually genuine. That's Hosea 6. I would encourage you to read it. See, the people in this psalm, they're banking on God's mercy and God's grace. Because it's God's mercy and God's grace that could restore them. Not themselves and not anything else. The second petition is found in uh, verse, where are you? verse 6. Will you not revive us again? When they ask God to revive them again, that is to make them alive by adding kindling to a dim light in their heart so that they would walk in his way. They're asking him, stoke the fire that we once had in our heart. And so how do you build upon a fire? Some of you as tired and weary saints, you might feel or have felt as though the fire in your heart toward the Lord was super dim. Have you ever like gone camping or had a fire pit and you start seeing that fire dwindle and dwindle and dwindle? And that's how you might feel your heart has been, or you may have even found yourself in those kinds of seasons. And so when they ask, or the author says, Revive us again. He is asking, add more kindling to our heart so that the fire would be stoked and eventually it would grow large. Again, they are asking God to do something only He can do. They are ultimately being uh, 100% vulnerable, saying that this fire in our heart, it's dim because we're weary, we're disheartened, we're discouraged, we're tired. Do you need that this morning? Have you needed that? You just feel like it's dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. Or maybe you have felt like it has just been so dim. Here they're saying, we recognize that we have sinned against you. And if you notice in Psalm 85, as we walk through it, no specific sin is mentioned. Right? It's not God calling them to repentance. It's them realizing that the condition of their hearts has been one of rebellion one of distance. And that they're not being condemned, they're being disciplined, and they recognize that. And as they recognize the condition of their heart, they recognize that this fire is dim. And they're asking God to do what God does to restore them, to revive them. Those are the two petitions. Those are the two requests and then, here it is, like, you could almost think about, like, think about it this way, the audacity that the, the writer has, right? Now he provides an argument. This is verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. 
what they end up doing is that they pray God's promises and character back to God. Saying, we're asking for you to restore us, for you to revive us, because only you can do these things because you show steadfast love. We cannot do this. In fact, when you read through verse 6 in some original translations, the emphasis isn't on the word revive. The emphasis is on the word you. They're looking to God, you revive us, you restore us, and they pray his character back to God. You might think, well, man, that's kind of weird. Isn't that a little selfish? No, that's seeing God rightly. That's the argument. Because you show steadfast love, because this is who you are, restore us, revive us. That's the argument. I dare you to pray that way today. I dare you to pray that way today. Now here's the result. Still found in verse 6. Will you not revive us again that, may, that your people may rejoice in you? They're saying restore us, revive us, show us your steadfast love so that we may have joy again. Restoration and revival brings about joy. Because that fire is being stoked. So where do you find yourself this morning as you evaluate your heart just like the people in this prayer? Where do you find yourself? Some of you may still be arguing. You just can't pray God's character and mercy back to him. Isn't that selfish? No, it is seeing him rightly. It is genuinely believing in God's grace for you. I get that that's hard, but that doesn't mean that's not what it is. And listen to me. Repeated grace is real grace. Repeated grace, unmerited, undeserving favor from God towards sinners, repeated grace is real grace. See, on the cross, when, when Jesus yelled out, it is finished, there wasn't like dot, dot, dot until you jack it up again. Like, that wasn't a part of that. It's not in our translation, I don't think. You know what I'm saying? That's not what he said. What he's ultimately doing is saying, it is finished, the whole thing, and therefore, his grace is poured out onto you because that's who he is. Listen to John in uh, John 1.16. For from his fullness. In other words, this is everything that Jesus is. He is full of this and is not emptied. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Translated, it would be grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It is a well that does not go empty. It is the well that, these, that the people of God are banking on. Revival includes a repentance that leads to joy. Third, this is worship. This is verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 8, the psalmist says on behalf of the people, let me hear what God will speak. Check it. It's never foolish to wait upon God, right? It's an interesting prayer. It's kind of changed a little bit, right? In the opening verses, he begins with remembering God's mercy for them. 
remembering what God has done for them. And then he moves to petition. Restore us, revive us, show us your steadfast love. This will lead to joy. And now we get to verse eight and it comes down to worship. And that's really uh, interesting. And that's a really good thing for us to consider. In other words, this prayer isn't like, I'm just gonna leave it here at God's feet. I'm gonna go ahead and do my own thing. Like there is eager expectation that God is going to answer. They don't just move on to the next thing. In fact, they pursue worship. So it is never foolish to wait upon the Lord. It's never foolish to wait upon the Lord. God will answer. The problem is we're too impatient and we don't want to wait for him. In fact, that's part of the reason we don't pray and lay it out before God. It involves waiting and that's not our thing. So when he says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, he's talking about worship. And worship, I mean, think about what we've been doing this morning. Worship is active waiting. It's not passive waiting. It's not passivity where you're just not doing nothing. Parents been in the delivery room before? Are you not doing anything at all in the delivery room? No. There's a lot of things happening as you wait, right? Some of your resolutions are to uh, work out, right? As you start whatever program you're going to find yourself in, you might come across this term called active recovery. Active recovery is when you are not doing intense exercise, but it is when you take a day to intentionally work on your mobility or if you're super sore and you have all that lactic acid, you go for a walk, right? Motion is lotion, right? Like there's some truth to that. And so active recovery is when you go for a walk and you do some mobility, you're still on point with your meals and your hydration and so on. Active recovery, you're not doing nothing. You're not just sitting on the couch waiting for the next day to come so that you can go train again. Worship is active waiting. Worship consists of the pursuit of God's word so that we would remember what God has done for us, so that we would continue to bring this prayer before him. Worship consists of the pursuit of God's promises, that he is faithful, that he is the righteous one. We're going to look at that in a minute. Worship consists of of delighting in Jesus. You see, most of us, when it comes to a prayer like this, right, remembering God's mercy, check, petition, awesome. And then what happens after that is that uh, we close this and then like three weeks later, it's like, God has ignored me. Where's God? I can't believe God's not going to answer my prayer. And like your void, uh, your life is like void of Jesus, void of community, void of prayer. And so you find yourself back in the place where you're disheartened and discouraged That's a good place in the sense of realizing where you are. But when it comes to Psalm 85, they don't stop after the petition. All right, so uh, God, your word said this is true. Do your thing. I'm going to be, you know, playing video games, whatever your thing is. That's all I can think about. Worship is actively waiting. 
It's eagerly expecting God to answer. And we do that by seeking Him in His Word, remembering His promises, and delighting in Jesus. And sometimes, quite frankly, delighting in Jesus means uh, unabashedly, completely uh, unfiltered, raw, dropping things in front of Him. This is where my heart is at. This is what's going on. I mean, isn't that what they did here? Consider the prayer. He continues, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Man, where does God speak peace? He speaks peace through his word. Here's what's interesting. He says, but let them not turn back to folly. The word folly in this text is, is really interesting. Uh, the meaning of this word is confidence, which is kind of interesting. But it's not the kind of confidence that we're thinking about, right? It's more like overconfidence, arrogance, like an ego. In other words, what the psalmist is saying here is don't turn back to your folly. Don't turn back to thinking you're good and you don't need God. You've already been down that road before. That's exactly why we're here. That's what he's saying. That's what the word folly means in this text. You ever get in that really good place of complacency? Things are going really well. Nothing, quote, bad has happened. And you're just like, yeah, man, things are cool. And when someone asks you, hey, where are you at with Jesus? Man, I'm, I don't really need that right now. I'm good. I'm good. But then chaos hits or conflict ensues or whatever starts happening. And you're like, man, where is everything that I thought I knew? That's what he's talking about when it comes to folly. Don't walk in arrogance. Don't turn back to thinking you're good. It's not just folly in terms of rebellion. It's folly in terms of arrogance and ego and pride. Don't turn back to that. And so he concludes this section. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell uh, in our land. See, as he's worshiping, that active waiting, that eager expectation, it leads to the fear of God. And there are so many de uh, definitions for the fear of the Lord, right? I've said them. Some of you may even know some of them on your own. Some of you may say, well, the fear of the Lord is reverence, right? Reverence for who God is. So that, man, that's like this super high, holy respect for who God is. Some of you, if asked, hey, what is the fear of the Lord? You would say, well, it's awe. Man, that you are in awe of God and his, his, how powerful he is and his sovereignty. Um, some of you might even say, man, uh, the fear of the Lord is, is you being sensitive to his work and his rule. And those are good definitions. I'm not knocking them because I use them. But what I really love about the Bible is that it keeps it simple. The fear of the Lord means uh, biblically that you're afraid of God. Like, that's it. Like, that, that's why they keep it pretty simple. The fear of the Lord means that you're afraid of God in that you recognize who God is. That this mercy and grace is only something that can be stowed upon you by Him. That the petition for restoration and revival is only a work that God can do. That yes, God is love and he is merciful and he is gracious and he is righteous and he is true and he judges. The fear of the Lord means that you're afraid of God in that you recognize who God is and that you are not him. 
Proverbs, we're actually going to open up with this section next week. Proverbs 1 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, the fear of the Lord, as we actively pursue God, we increase in the fear of the Lord, and it leads us to cultivate wisdom. You will know who the fool is because they will reject wisdom. Alan and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, that there are these themes in Proverbs. There are these people in Proverbs. So you have the simple, you have the scoffer, you have the foolish, you have the lazy, right? And when it comes to like the scoffer, the lazy, uh, uh, and, and, and the foolish, it's really just under that one giant category. These are fools. These are the ones that reject wisdom, that reject instruction. Revival consists of worship. It consists of worship and cultivating wisdom as we delight in Jesus. Finally, we come to the last portion of this prayer, and this is restoration. This is verses 10 to 13. In this portion of the the prayer, the psalmist prays by very creatively and very poetically looking forward to the day where God will answer and what that will look like. And he does so by considering something we've already seen, the character of God. So he opens up verse 10 by saying, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. He considers the character of God. We can call this attributes of God. And so beginning with steadfast love, again, he's saying this very creatively and poetically, but beginning with steadfast love, the word for steadfast love here is this Hebraic word uh, called chesed. And chesed is God's love and kindness. This is what he is praying to God. Uh, This is what he's praying back to God. This is where you and I are going to find definitely some comfort. And so he's praying about God's love and kindness, that God's pursuit of his people is because of the covenant he has made with them. And when he prays about God's faithfulness, he is saying that God is the most reliable person you could ever consider or trust, that God is consistent. God is true. When he writes of his righteousness, he's saying that God is the only one who is right. He is the standard of righteousness and morality and purity. And when he writes about peace, he is saying God is the one who provides ultimate peace between him and man. So he's praying uh, God's character back to him. He's praying on through the attributes of God. And he's looking forward to the day where God will answer and what it will look like. Now, the beauty of these attributes is that as the church, we have seen these attributes demonstrated in Jesus. When it comes to steadfast love, if it is God's pursuit of his people, what ended up having Jesus entered into our world to live the life that you and I can't live, take responsibility for our mess, die on a cross in our place and for our sin, so that we might be forgiven and made right with God. Your salvation is not random. That is an example of steadfast love. When you consider 
the faithfulness of Jesus. Man, the coming of Jesus was foretold by God himself all the way back in the garden that there will be one who will make all things new. There will be one who will bring about restoration. There will be one who ultimately reconciles us to God. When you consider righteousness, Jesus was the sinless Savior who died in our place. Check it. At the cross, it's, we talk about the forgiveness of sin and, and the wrath of God being satisfied there, but there's more that happened at the cross. You see, at the cross, what ended up happening is this thing called the great exchange. And the great exchange is where our unrighteousness was pinned upon Jesus. It was put upon Jesus and his righteousness was imputed, exchanged, given, transferred to us. The sinless Savior who died so that we might be clothed in His righteousness, not our own. The sinless Savior who entered into our world is the one that brings about peace with God by reconciling us to the Father. As the church, that's you, as the church, these attributes by His grace are characteristics that we can communicate to one another and to a watching world. When it comes to steadfast love, it is our pursuit of one another because Jesus has first pursued us. When it comes to faithfulness, it is us being not just true to one another or faithful with our resources, but faithful to Jesus above everything else. And when it comes to righteousness, that now because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we can pursue personal righteousness, that we can seek after the kingdom of God, we can walk in obedience to God, not so that we would be acceptable to God, but because he, we already belong to him through Jesus. When you consider peace, that means that we can come before God in confidence. And what is it that you're going to receive when you come before God in confidence? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. A well of grace that will never go dry. Revival begins with remembering God's mercy for you, revival ends with restoration. Before we consider resolutions, let us consider revival. Let us turn toward God in humility and ask Him to revive our hearts again and again. And every time we are tired and weary, and every time we find ourselves discouraged and disheartened, resolutions literally come and go, but God's grace is a promise that remains for you because of his faithfulness to you. Revival consists of remembering God's mercy, repentance, worship, and restoration. May that be the cry of our heart as a church this year. More than anything, may God revive us again so that we would walk in his ways. And so as we close, Christian, where do you find yourself this morning? Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you weary or disheartened? Are you discouraged? 
Do you find yourself in that place like, man, I'm here again? Let me encourage you with two things. Let me invite you to remember God's mercy for you. And then, let me invite you to allow that mercy to lead you to repentance. The place where by grace you approach the Lord and by His grace are received and according to His kindness receive more grace upon more grace upon more grace upon more grace. As we begin to close, consider Selah. And if you're not a Christian, really, thank you for being here. It's a big deal. And all the things that we talked about, you cannot do these things apart from a relationship with Jesus, apart from knowing Jesus. My heart for you isn't so much revival as much as it is awakening for you to be made alive in Christ by His grace. And by His grace, you can come and know Jesus by turning away from your sin and turning toward Jesus. Today, consider Jesus. Church, a prayer for revival consists of God's grace refreshing tired and weary saints again and again and again. Let's pray. God, we're no different than the people from Psalm 85. And that's some comfort. We're in good company, I think. Lord, as we consider revival, it really leads us to think about things that we have been captivated by. Things that have turned us away from you. Things that we have genuinely wanted to pursue in rebelling against you. But when we consider Psalm 85, we're reminded that your word does not return void. That even the saints of old struggled with the same things we struggle with today. Lord, as we consider a new year, may we first confess what captivated our hearts previously, whether that would be today or yesterday. May we confess that we can willfully become distracted and at times spiritually exhausted by something other than your grace. Father, we come before you frail. We come before you confessing our offenses against you. And in your presence, we cast our burdens that our bones have grown so weary of before you. Lord, when we consider Psalm 85 we remember that you call us your beloved. That because of Jesus, we belong to you as sons and daughters. A sealed truth that, that no one can take away from us. And to this, it is all because of Jesus. So more than resolutions, may we consider revival. And would you forgive us from our wandering are wandering from your truth, are forgetting your grace. May we consider revival in that 
we are in need of refreshment. We are in need of refreshment from the well of your grace that does not go dry. In your word, you tell us that it is the kindness of your heart that leads us to repentance, and that is part of that well of grace that just does not go dry. May we come before you and drink of that well. And may the beauty and splendor of the gospel take root in our hearts so that we would be revived again. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.